Welcome to Uncovered, the new podcast series that goes behind the headlines to give you an in-depth look at the stories that matter. I'm Kelly Crichton and on each episode I'll be joined by the National World reporters who are working to bring information to light and hold those in power accountable. We've been revealing the journalistic work that goes into the team's investigations and highlighting some important stories which we think you need to know about, which have gone uncovered in the wider media. Today I'm joined by Ethan Schoen, investigative reporter with National World, to talk about his extensive work revealing the full extent of MPs' commitments outside of Parliament during the pandemic. Ethan's work has looked at the Register of Members' financial interests dating back to the start of 2020. The findings are being published across National World this week and established that collectively, parliamentarians have received payments of approximately £10 million between January 2020 and August 2021 from work outside their role as MP during this time. Hi Ethan, we're talking about MPs' other jobs or income today. Many listeners may be aware of the press coverage surrounding MP Owen Patterson last week, whereby he had been found guilty of misconduct around lobbying and the declaration of such by an independent body, which ultimately led to his resigning. Will you please tell us just what other work MPs are allowed to do under the current rules of Parliament? Hi, Kelly. Yeah, it's quite an easy one to answer that. The current rules around outside work for MPs really leave pretty much everything on the table apart from kind of explicit what's called paid political advocacy. So that means basically unless someone is directly giving you money to, let's say, introduce legislation on their behalf or to specifically advocate for their interests in parliament, then that's banned and that has been banned since I think the 17th century. Apart from that, the process is very, very complex and no one quite knows who is responsible for what aspect of it. But the short answer is that aside from paid political advocacy, there are no real jobs that MPs aren't allowed to take on. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, there is no formal limit on the amount of work that MPs can take on. Now, that's the amount in terms of how much they can earn, Mm -hmm. but also the amount of time that they can spend on work outside of Parliament. Okay, so you've carried out a very thorough analysis of the figures provided under the Register of Members' Financial Interests. Take us through some of the main findings, please. Yeah, so it's been an awful lot of work, partly because the Register of Members' Financial Interests is a really, really terrible document to work with. And a number of organisations have pointed out that this needs to be changed because, you know, it's one thing for us as a a news publication with an investigative team and Mm. with data experts to be able to go through all this and eventually come up with some figures. But if you were a member of the public who just wanted to understand this and have a a clear idea of what your constituency MP does, it would be near on impossible to to come up with the figures we've got. So we've found that between January 2020 and August 2021, MPs, or rather those MPs who have got and registered outside income, have registered around 10 million. Now, the figure is as exact as we can get it, but with this kind of thing, there will always be some degree of approximation involved just because of the kind of pro ratas. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the way that MPs register their earnings often doesn't have to be complete. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the time commitments, it might not be the full amount. But 9.45 million is a kind of minimum figure for what MPs have earned since January 2020 up until August 2021. This doesn't include, however, hospitality, which in some instances can be also quite a significant amount of money. I mean, if you think of Theresa May, for instance, she received something like £65,000 worth of hospitality simply from Heathrow Airport in the last 18 months or so. It also doesn't include rental income. And and MPs have, between those MPs who are landlords and who do have some rental income, they've earned at least 
two and a half million and much more likely to be in the in the region of four million again because of the limitations in how this has to be registered. You know, a few there are a few dozen MPs who currently work as advisors and consultants in roles that the Committee on Standards in Public Life has on a number of occasions since 2008 called for a ban on these type of jobs mm -hmm. because what it amounts to in many instances is MPs not doing the direct advocacy that we talked about before, but doing it in kind of an indirect way. Mm -hmm. So in total, about one in three MPs register some form of outside earnings. And of that kind of nine and a half, 10 million pound figure, about 80% of that is registered by Conservative MPs or has been in the period since January 2020. So uh, while I think there is at least one MP from every party who has some kind of paid outside work, it would be wrong to say that this is a problem that's spread equally across the whole political spectrum from what we've found. And in terms of the kind of time that MPs spend on work outside of Parliament, not just the money that they earn, we've come across a number of MPs who work the equivalent of more than two days a week every week on jobs outside of Parliament, which is a really significant amount of time, I think, particularly given that I think most people have the assumption that being an MP is certainly a full-time job and, and probably, if anything, more than a full-time job. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Who are the MPs topping this list? So the, the top earner, perhaps unsurprisingly, is Theresa May. Now, it's long been the case that prime ministers in the kind of few years after they leave office will go on a bit of um, an earning spree, really. Um, usually what they, they tend to do is get paid significant amounts of money to deliver speeches or kind of do presentations and talks. And they do that for a wide range of, of kind of organisations. Theresa May in particular, since she left office in late 2019, has earned about £1.3 million exclusively through speeches. I think the most she's earned for a single speech was 160 odd thousand pounds, which was for the investment bank JP Morgan. I think to give you an idea of how much she earns per hour from that, technically it was listed as about a 25, 26 hour commitment, but that would include her preparation time and travel time. Overall, that one wasn't kind of the most lucrative per hour, but in some instances she's earning comfortably 10,000 pounds per hour. Clearly we can understand that there is some degree of kind of star power, maybe, for an organisation to say that they have a former British Prime Minister speaking at an event. But I think when, if anyone is being paid £10,000 an hour for more or less anything, I think it raises some questions about what that actually gets you for that money or, or what, it's, what it's for. Moving beyond Theresa May, there are some really interesting individual cases. I mean, Andrew Mitchell, the Conservative MP for Sutton Coldfield, who some listeners may well remember from the Plebgate saga. Andrew Mitchell has, depending on how you count it, between six and eight regular jobs uh, outside of his role as an MP. He's received payments from eight different companies since January 2020. Six of those companies pay him in a regular role for a, for a regular commitment of at least a couple of days a year. He was paid over £50,000 in January 2020 as a facilitation payment, according to his entry in the Register of Interests. Um, now, that was for a company called GVG Holdings, um, and they were actually named in the Pandora Papers leak from the um, ICIJ last month. Um, 
they're just one of the companies that employ him. Another is a corporate intelligence firm. Now, from what you, we can glean from their website and what is apparent from kind of who they are as a company, they charge clients to protect or warn them about political and reputational threats, as it says on their website. From what we can glean about what he does for them, his role seems to be about giving insight into how Parliament works or what might be coming in Parliament or what might otherwise be classed as political consultancy. Now, this takes us back to what the Committee on Standards in Public Life said should be explicitly banned. Uh, as recently as a couple of weeks ago, they published a, a report calling for this again. OK, so what about other examples of income? There's a wide range. At the sillier end of things, there are a couple of MPs who have been paid to referee football matches um, <laughs> since January 2020. There is a, an MP who, at the height of the pandemic, took on a role as a part-time politics professor. So I, I like to think that he was kind of teaching politics part-time and doing politics part-time as well as an MP as a result of that job. One MP had a one-off payment of, I think, £900 approximately for a painting which he sold to one of his MP colleagues, which is nice. No word yet on what that painting was of. <laughs> and so there are a lot there's, there's a lot there yeah there's an interesting range of second jobs there thank you very much mr deputy speaker and can i refer to my entry in the register of members interests you can refer in the house to my uh, register of interests and before i begin refer members to my declaration in the register of members financial interests There were some particular instances where you noted potential conflict of interest. Can you tell us about these? Yeah, so there are some specific instances that we've highlighted as, and I think the important thing to note here is that there is no suggestion that any of these MPs have done anything, certainly illegal, um, mm -hmm. but, but more broadly speaking, wrong by the rules as they exist. And in the cases where we're highlighting the potential for a conflict of interest, it should be noted that in the eyes of the kind of MPs code of conduct and, and the rules that govern how MPs should conduct themselves, doing something which can give the appearance of bias or which could potentially lead to a conflict of interest is as much of a problem as a real conflict of interest because it's about public faith in the system. So mm -hmm. now that we've kind of got that caveat in there, a few of the individual cases, I mean, one of the, one of the notable ones is with the gambling lobby. A, they... The gambling lobby has quite an active programme of, of giving out hospitality to MPs. So whether that's tickets to football matches, I mean, the Euros were on during this period and mm -hmm. a good number of MPs were able to get hold of tickets to the semi-finals and finals uh, of that tournament, generally through either bookmakers or gambling firms or gambling lobby groups. Now, some of those, uh, those MPs are sit on what's called an all-party parliamentary group to do with gambling and, and, and reducing the harm that comes from gambling. Now, all-party parliamentary groups are an interesting thing because they have no official basis in parliament. They're not like, for instance, a select committee which is charged with scrutinising laws. They don't have any position within the government. But in theory, what they are supposed to do is they are supposed to be a way for MPs who share an interest in a certain area to be able to semi-officially meet and discuss how they can coordinate action on those activities. A number of organisations have raised concerns about all party parliamentary groups that they are and potentially can be just a backdoor for lobbying. Now, when we look at the money that the gambling lobby has put into not only hospitality through those APPGs, but also through taking people on into their payroll, two MPs at least 
have regular work with firms linked to the gambling industry. One of those is the owner of Ladbrokes and Coral Bookmakers. The other is the basically the primary gambling lobbying organisation. Two MPs, Philip Davies and Lawrence Robertson, both Conservative MPs, have received significant amounts of money from those. And it really raises the question about what these organisations are actually paying for when they take on MPs. And, you know, a number of groups have expressed concerns about this to us. There's also instances of companies which have donated primarily to government MPs, so, so MPs who've recently had ministerial posts or have moved into them. A company called Aquind, which is involved in a massive, very controversial interconnector project in Portsmouth. So if it goes through, which is not certain yet, will cause massive, massive disruption and, and which there's been a huge local pushback against. It's been well documented for a number of years that the some of the people who run this company have donated significant amounts to the Conservative Party. Uh, but we found more examples of this, including Simon Clark MP, who was recently appointed as a minister in the Treasury, is one of the most recent recipients of, of significant donations from Aquind. There are a couple more specific instances which would raise the question about a conflict of interest. And I won't go into those too much here, but you can find them on National World. But I think it's probably also worth talking about the broader idea of what a conflict of interest might actually be for an MP and, and I, I don't think to do that we have to go into specific companies gaining or specific industries even. I think there's a conflict of interest between the two employers, if you like, of an MP who has a, a job as an MP and a second job. If someone is earning significant amounts of money, and in some cases more than they earn as an MP, then the question has to be, which is their primary role? And if their primary role isn't that of being an MP, then which interests are they representing above and beyond those of their constituents? So I think conflict of interesting is a key term in this. And it, it, it has a few applications, I think. Is there a system in place to deal robustly with these potential conflicts of interest? Well, it's an interesting thing, really, because obviously Owen Patterson would have faced consequences and now in a roundabout way has. He's had to or he has felt that he had to resign his seat in Parliament. Mm -hmm. and, and prior to that, it was recommended by initially the Parliamentary Commissioner for Standards, which is a kind of independent officer of the House of Commons, a non-MP and someone who is independent of the processes. So what happens is if there is an allegation of misconduct relating to second jobs or something similar, the independent Parliamentary Commissioner for Standards is the first person who will investigate that. So what happened in Owen Patterson's case, the commissioner went carried out a very long investigation. But once that invest investigation concludes, the report that, um, that, that the producers from that, from that investigation is put before a cross-party committee of MPs called the Committee on Standards. Mm -hmm. Now, as well as having a, a mix of MPs from all political parties, it also has lay members, so non-MPs. And now the idea of that is to try and make this process as impartial as possible. And, and most select committees are just made up of MPs. The idea with the Committee on Standards is that it doesn't look great for ultimately MPs to be the only people signing off on their behaviour and kind of, you know, rubber stamping it mm -hmm. one way or another. What happened with the Owen Patterson scandal was that the commissioner investigated, she found egregious instances of paid political advocacy and the Committee on Standards agreed with her, uh, agreed with her report. They voted unanimously in favour of carrying that report forward, which would have meant a 30-day suspension for Owen Patterson. Mm -hmm. Now, that's when we saw the, the government try and step in mm -hmm. and change the process and how all this works. And we didn't get the full detail on how that would have worked. And it doesn't look like where we're going to now because they've mm -hmm. U-turned on it. 
But it seems like what they were suggesting was a new committee which would have been only staffed by MPs and crucially which would have had a Conservative majority built mm-hmm. into it mm-hmm. with a named minister, Sir John Whittingdale, a former Conservative minister, mm-hmm. named as the chair of that committee. Interestingly, Sir John Whittingdale is among the 30 or so MPs who currently is employed as a political consultant or advisor. So that's the process as it exists currently. Mm-hmm. Now, you could be forgiven for thinking that the process does something like what it's supposed to because of what's happened to Owen Paterson. Mm-hmm. However, there was nothing wrong with Owen Paterson taking a lobbying job for £100,000 per year on top of his work as an MP by the rules. There was nothing wrong with him taking another job on top of that one. Had he kept piling job on top of job and you know salary on top of salary endlessly, by the letter of the law, nobody would have had a remit to step in and say that's too much work to take on on top of your job. So Mm -hmm. if there is reason to believe that there is a specific act of paid advocacy, then it can be and will be investigated. But there is no limit and so no way to police a limit on the amount or even the nature of work that MPs take on. Some may find it mind-boggling that sitting MPs can work on behalf of private industry. What response have you been getting to this information? Yeah, it's a really interesting one. I think when, as a journalist, you kind of know that you're onto a bit of a story whenever you talk to people about Mm -hmm. it and they seem actually interested because so often as journalists (laughs) we write about things that we know are important but are just not interesting at all. Um, And and every time I speak to someone who perhaps isn't as engaged with politics as I unfortunately am, they can't believe that MPs are allowed to take on second jobs at all. Um, You know, the idea that someone who earns £80,000 per year and more in in many instances, kind of say that that's not a full-time job or can say that they should be able to and need to be able to, as some MPs have argued, earn additional income on top of that, I think is quite quite shocking. Mm -hmm. But it's nothing new. The rules as they exist now are actually a hangover of when MPs a long, long time ago, we're talking hundreds of years ago, weren't paid or certainly weren't paid very much and the role Mm -hmm. was intended to be more or less an unpaid one. Now, there are a lot of routes this argument can go down and in some instances it it can be a little bit counterintuitive i mean there is an instinct there that says mps should be paid not that much money but in practice what that would do i suppose is is two things one it would make it so that only rich people go into politics really because Mm -hmm. they would be the only ones who could afford to Mm -hmm. and from a slightly more cynical point of view we know that lots of people who we might deem to be competent and successful currently work in the private sector in jobs that pay a lot more than £80,000 a year. And so many MPs would argue that if you reduce that though, that threshold for earnings below 80000 or, or further, rightly or wrongly, lots of people who we want running the country wouldn't be interested in doing it because it wouldn't pay them enough. There are arguments against this. But fundamentally, I think something has to change on this because people don't like this idea that you can be an MP, but in theory... You know, you can spend a couple of days working for this other company doing something else. You can work on your book if you like. I think that when the full extent of this is known, and there are other, there are other, you know, this is being covered in a, a wider way now because of the Owen Paterson scandal. I don't think it's tenable for MPs to be keeping second jobs in the long term. But I don't think there is any public support for MPs to be able to keep doing what they're doing currently. I've spoken with a number of 
MPs, current and former, about this. And most of them have said that they just don't understand how an MP can work as a constituency MP, do what's supposed to do in Parliament and have jobs on top of that. Former Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell said to me that he doesn't do any paid work outside of his role as an MP. He said, quote, I serve on lots of local community groups and work with national campaigns all voluntarily as part of my MP's role. Given the commitments in Parliament, in the constituency, and on the many national and international campaigns I participate in, I don't know where I could find the time for anything else, even if I wanted. I also spoke to a former Liberal Democrat MP, Tom Brake, who's now the director of an organisation called Unlock Democracy, which campaigns for parliamentary reform. And he said, quote, There are some MPs who you do wonder when they manage to fit in any time for their constituents at all. He said, the main issue for me is that it distracts attention from what should be their principal responsibility, which is representing their constituents, but of course also being involved in legislation. My starting point is that they should be spending no time on doing outside things unless they are there as a very clear link to the constituents. Listeners may be interested to know if their MP has a second job or other income. Is that something they can find out? Yeah, so if you head to nationalworld.com, you should be able to see all of our coverage there of the kind of MPs second jobs scandal. We've also got a database which you can enter your constituency name or your postcode or even the name of a specific MP if that's what you want to know. And that'll tell you whether they've recorded any income um, during the pandemic period. It'll also tell you whether they are currently a landlord and how much they've earned. Okay, thank you for joining me today, Ethan. You can find a series of articles exposing the full extent of MPs' work outside Parliament on nationalworld.com. I'll be back again soon with more analysis of the stories that matter. 